Hello, I'm Alison Wilson, Linklater's Global Head of Dispute Resolution and Chair of our Investigations Cross-Practice Initiative. I'm delighted to welcome you to the Linklater's Investigations Insights podcast. In this podcast series, thought leaders and subject matter experts from our Investigations Network explore some of the challenges and complexities that specialists' investigation work can present and share best practice and guidance. Thanks for joining us. I hope you find the episode useful. Hello, I'm Rachel Metcalf, a Managing Associate in the Dispute Resolution Practice at Linklaters, based in London. And I'm joined today by three of my colleagues, also in the London Disputes Practice, Alison Saunders, Ellie Proudlock, and James Phoenix, who have kindly agreed to share their expertise and insights on matters related to business crime investigations. With the Serious Fraud Office set to see a change of leadership later this year, following the news that Lisa Osofsky is stepping down in August 2023 after a five-year tenure, in this podcast, we will be discussing some of the successes and failures across her term and the challenges and developments likely to feature on her and the future SFO director's agenda in 2023 and beyond. Alison, Ellie, James, welcome to this Investigations Insights podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Rachel. Hi. I don't think I'm speaking out of turn to say that Ms. Osofsky's term as director has been mixed, but let's start with some of the successes and positive developments. Ellie, let's kick off with you. What comes to mind? Well, I suppose it depends how you define success in this context. But over the past four years, there have been a handful of convictions, confiscations and deferred prosecution agreements, which collectively have been fairly significant in terms of their financial value, and one of which involved the largest financial penalty resulting from a conviction in the UK. Another positive development for the SFO has been the proposed extension of its pre-investigation powers in the Economic Crime Bill, which is currently going through Parliament. This will allow the SFO to compel information and documents at the pre-investigation stage in all its cases, not just in foreign bribery cases, which is the position at the moment. Excellent, thanks. And James, just to probe a little more on the topic of deferred prosecution agreements or DPAs that Ellie mentioned, are we likely to see the use of them continue? So I think it's going to be interesting to see what approach the new director takes. Uh, DPAs were only actually introduced around eight years ago in this country, but recent outcomes suggest the SFO may already be moving away from them and looking to make more use of their ability to enter plea discussions, where a company pleads guilty to an offence but agrees with the SFO the facts which will be put before the court for sentencing. To be honest, it wouldn't be surprising if the new director continues this approach when you look at the issues DPAs have thrown up particularly the reputational impact for the SFO and the DPA regime of so many inconsistent outcomes, like the acquittal of individuals, sometimes at half time, following a DPA with the company. Thank you. And earlier, Ellie mentioned the Economic Crime Bill, which includes an extension of the SFO's pre-investigation powers. But another area that seems to be on the verge of significant development is that of corporate criminal liability, with calls by MPs to amend the bill to introduce a corporate failure to prevent offence for fraud, false accounting and money laundering. Alison, why are MPs and others calling for that change? Where the liability of the corporate hinges on the state of mind of individuals, it's notoriously hard to secure convictions of large modern companies. And there have been a number of high profile examples of prosecutions failing for that very reason. That's particularly the case with fraud offences, whereas for bribery offences, the SFO has had the benefit for some years now of the Section 7 failure to prevent bribery offence, which of course sidesteps that whole issue. So it's perhaps no surprise that DPAs have become almost synonymous with the Section 7 offence. 
On a more political level, it's been some six years or so since the Ministry of Justice issued a call for evidence in relation to corporate liability reform. So I think it's fair to say that progress to date has been very slow, albeit there is an increasing pressure now to do something about it. And the government has indeed confirmed recently that it will be addressed in the Economic Crime Bill. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. And Ellie, given these difficulties in securing convictions, I'd be interested in your views on whether this has undermined the SFO's ultimate aim to encourage corporate self-reporting and cooperation. Well, I think it undoubtedly has, though I, I wonder whether a bigger obstacle to encouraging corporates to come forward might be the comparatively weak incentives that the DPA regime in the UK offers. So typically no more than a 50% discount on penalty. In the US, the, the Department of Justice has recently revised its corporate enforcement policy to make it easier for cooperating companies, even those guilty of serious misconduct, to avoid prosecution. And it's also strengthened the incentive for companies to self-report by significantly increasing the potential discount on the overall fine. One wonders whether a similar approach is needed over here to get the DPA regime back on track, as it's not always the case that DPAs result in lower financial penalties. Yeah, thanks, Ali. And, and I agree that the DOJ's revised corporate enforcement policy should provide food for thought for the incoming SFO director. And if, if our listeners are interested in, in learning more about that revised policy, our US counterparts have recently written a blog post on that, and it's available on our client knowledge portal and, and definitely worth a closer read. It seems that we've already begun to touch upon some of the SFO's challenges in the last five years, but to delve a little deeper, Alison, are there any other challenges or failures that are worth highlighting to our listeners? Um, yes, there are some other challenges. Um, so the DPA regime and corporate liability laws aren't the only things that have been holding the SFO back. Disclosure and inadequate resourcing have also been a recurring issue for the SFO. And I don't think it will be a surprise or new to many of our listeners, but a trial of two former Serco executives for fraud in 2021 collapsed after the SFO failed to hand over documents to the defence. And in the same year, the Unioil case in the Court of Appeals severely criticised the SFO's failure to disclose vital evidence and quashed three convictions. The independent reports into the SFO's handling of both of these cases were, to quote Ms. Osofsky herself, a sobering read and made a large number of recommendations for reform and improvement. Both of those cases ultimately and reports ultimately highlight similar issues of lack of resources, inadequate supervision and also a lack of compliance with SFO internal procedures. Yeah, thanks, Alison. And I know that disclosure issues were particularly highlighted in the Serco report by Brian Altman, KC. Um, Ellie, do you, do you think that suggests an overhaul of the current disclosure regime is what is needed now? Well, it's a tricky one because, of course, the criminal disclosure regime exists to protect the fairness of trials, but the volume of data in today's financial crime proceedings can be unmanageable. Now, clearly technology has a place there, but I don't think it's the only answer. An alternative which is favoured by some commentators would be a system whereby defendants were effectively given the keys to the warehouse, but then perhaps had to notify the prosecution if they intended to rely on any of the material. I can see some sense in that, though in practice, it would only really be feasible for well-represented defendants. And so you'd end up effectively with a two-tier disclosure system, 
which would throw up other issues. But the bottom line is it's clearly an area that needs to be looked at more closely. Yeah, agreed. And I just want to come back to the point Alison made earlier about inadequate resourcing um, being mentioned in both independent reports as a significant issue in the conduct of investigations. Because, James, I know you spent a year on secondment with the SFO, I think in 2019, 2020. So I'd be interested in your views on this and whether you think it's being addressed or likely to be addressed in the coming years. Sure. So my personal view from that experience is that resourcing was a pretty major issue for the SFO at the time I was there and, so far as I can tell, has continued to be an issue since. I think probably one of the most telling things for me is that the majority of people I worked with at the SFO in 2019 and 2020 have since left. And that probably gives you an indication that there are issues there. There's obviously been a reasonable amount of discussion in the press about issues with culture at the SFO and points like that, which I can't address. But what I can speak to is the much more prosaic point, which is that SFO employees are civil servants and are paid accordingly. So you have all the sorts of points that are very topical right now, like wages not rising with inflation. And that's recently led to strike action in the civil service and other sectors. Then that setup is compounded by challenging work and potentially other cultural issues. Everyone in this podcast knows, and I imagine a degree of our listeners know as well, how challenging investigations can be in terms of intensity and sometimes difficult subject matters. And work at the SFO is no different in that regard. It's just substantially less resourced. To me, that's maybe a bit out of kilter with some of the results the SFO has achieved in terms of penalties over the last few years, which Ellie mentioned earlier. In particular, I think the organisation would be in a very different place if it was able to keep a portion of its penalties for its own budget, which I understand is the model in the US with the Department of Justice. Absent a change like that or a funding shake-up more generally, it's hard for me to see how things will improve on the resourcing front for the SFO. Those kind of resourcing issues are not exactly new, and there's no evidence of such changes on the horizon. So unless a new director can make serious ground in that regard, I suspect we might unfortunately be saying the same things in a few years' time. Interesting. Thanks, James. I know that one of Asofsky's four key priorities when she started in the job in 2018 was also better use of technology in, in the SFO's cases. And unbeknown to her at that time, um, that was to become increasingly important in the ensuing years with the arrival of COVID-19. Ellie, what has the SFO achieved in terms of technological advancements and, and what is still to be done? Well, it won't be a surprise to those of us who were working with the SFO at the time the pandemic hit, but it certainly didn't cope well with the move to remote working in the early part of 2020. And I'm sure James can attest to that from his secondment. But a few months ago, um, Lisa Osofsky said that she'd secured over four million in extra funding in the 2021 spending round. And we expect that it will be focused on managing the vast amounts of data that the SFO receives in relation to each case and ensuring that this doesn't delay the investigation's progress. So um, the short answer to your question is there's still a lot to be done, but it does seem to be moving in the right direction. Thank you. And, and finally, Alison, this podcast has focused mainly on the SFO, but of course, there are many other criminal enforcement agencies whose activities may be relevant to businesses listening in. Are there any that you've noticed are particularly active at present or, or likely to be in the future? Yes, Rachel, that's a, a good question. We've certainly seen more um, regulators being active and active in a space that's relevant to businesses. 
One of the most pertinent examples, perhaps, is the Environment Agency, which has been very active both throughout the pandemic and subsequently, which is perhaps not surprising with public and parliamentary focus on environmental affairs. So not just water, which we've seen a lot of water quality, um, but more widely environmental um, concerns are really driving the Environment Agency's activities. Um, so they've been particularly active, but we've also seen other agencies who've become more active, such as the Gambling Authority, the Financial Conduct Authority. And I think they seem to be almost filling the gaps left by the inactivity of the Serious Fraud Office and others. So I think regulators are definitely people that we should be watching and businesses ought to be really aware of because they will be taking more enforcement activities, which I think are relevant to businesses. Thanks so much. That's super interesting. And, and as you say, certainly something to keep an eye on. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. So thank you to all of you, James, Ellie and Alison, for speaking with me today. And I hope our discussion has been useful to our listeners. So thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we've discussed today or explore our investigation services more broadly, please speak with your usual Linklaters contact. Click on the contact details provided for this episode or visit the investigations page on the linklaters.com website. I hope you'll join us again for more Investigations Insights.